The white-cheeked gibbon shares 96% of its genetic makeup with humans, making them a good model for investigating genomic evolution. A researcher at OHSU is using gibbons to compare DNA structures to investigate congenital diseases. It's Tuesday, July 17th, and this is OHSU Week. I'm Patrick Holmes. Casey Williamson sat down with Lucia Carbone to discuss this research. Hi, Lucia. So you work with gibbons look at genetic structures and are looking for clues that can expand our understandings of cancer. Can you give us an overview of your role at OHSU? Sure, so I am a faculty in the School of Medicine and I'm also um, uh, affiliated with the Pramit Center. And uh, so my research is really basic. I'm an evolutionary biologist, which can be a little bit odd in a medical school, but um, we study gibbons because they can teach us a lot for uh, about other things, um, like disease, like cancer, and congenital disorders as well. So tell us about the gibbons you work with and why they're necessary for your research. What are gibbons? So gibbons are apes, and they're critically endangered apes. Some of them are actually disappearing. They live in Southeast Asia. And uh, the reason why they're disappearing is mainly because humans, and uh, we're basically destroying their habitat. And the reason why I study their genome, uh, which is what I do, I actually study their genome, is because um, for some reason, they experience a lot of chromosomal rearrangements. And so chromosomes are basically the units that make up our genome, and they're made of DNA. And if you can imagine them as like Lego pieces, when you have uh, rearrangements, is you have changes in these Lego pieces. Uh, and so um, these rearrangements are uh, usually connected to disease, like cancer or congenital disorders. But they are also a way in which the genome can change through evolution and help species to actually adapt to the environment. And so since I started being a biologist, I've been very interested in why genomes change sometimes faster through time. And so gibbons have a lot of these chromosomal arrangements, and the other apes don't. And so my question has always been why, and also how can we use this as a model to study these chromosomal arrangements? So that's why I study gibbons. And because they are so endangered, I have to rely on samples, blood samples that come from checkups of these animals. And so it's completely opportunistic collection, which took years and years for me. And so when you say opportunistic, what does that mean? So these animals are in zoos. Oh, we collaborate with the Gibbon Conservation Center that is in California. And of course they get disease or they need to be transferred sometimes. Some of the females get pregnant. So as humans, they go to checkups and they get blood draws. If they get like, I don't know, 10 ml of blood draw, I can get a little bit of that. And then I use that to extract DNA, establish cell lines, and we use that for our experiments. So it's not invasive, but it's really, really important for us to get this kind of material. Can you share some examples of your research findings? Sure. So we just published a paper in Genome Research in which we explored this, um, what we decided to call genomics false shuffle. So um, I told you that the chromosomes are like uh, made of Lego pieces. These are units. 
And you can imagine that when you start shuffling them, you can have bad consequences. And so one question I always add is like, how come gibbons have so many shuffling, but they're still here and they're healthy and you know they are evolving? What we discover is that the shuffling is happening in a way that is really moving these units, but not breaking them. And so they're moving around in the genome, but it's like kind of a false shuffle. The, the units stay intact. So genes are not broken and, and the organization is kept pretty conserved. And, and so this made me think that we can study the same phenomenon in a lot of other mammals and see if that's the case, and also identify what are these units that have to stay conserved and what happens when we kind of mess up with them. And w that's my next step now. And how will you pursue that next step? So what we're trying to do, and I have an experiment going on, which is a pilot, I can do this pilot thanks to the OHSU pilot funding, is to, we're using CRISPR-Cas9, so genome, genome editing, to kind of break up some of these units, one unit. And we're using a model, a mouse model to do that, of course, because we cannot do these experiments in, in gibbons. And we're gonna see what happens. Um, so the experiment is just started, so I don't know yet the result. Can you explain the pilot funding that you've received? Yes. So the pilot funding that I received is the USR uh, University Shared Resources. You can apply for that and you get up to $10,000 that are, can be used in the University Shared Resources. So in my case, the shared resources I'm using for this project is the transgenic core and the massive parallel sequencing shared resources. That's been like really great because I didn't have funds to do this pilot, and, and so it's allowing me to actually create a mouse model, which is awesome. You're the director of the Epigenetics Consortium. What is that, how did it evolve, and what's your role with that? Yes, we started the epigenetic consortium within the Knight Cardiovascular Institute uh, about two years ago now. And there are two components to it. One is a consortium that is made up of faculty at OHSU that is very interested in epigenetics. And the nice thing is that this faculty is interested in different types of epigenetics. So reproductive science, maternal reprogramming, puberty, environmental. And so we get together monthly to really discuss the state of the field, new technology, and we have seminars, and we have also an external advisor from UCSF that uh, comes regularly to visit us. But the other component is a service core. The service core is a core, it's also shared resources, that we use to help investigators that are new to the epigenetics field to do experiments. And uh, we have both an experimental component, so we can do experiments for them, but also a bioinformatics component, so we can analyze the data. And so a project can be done start to finish within my core. And we're getting to work on some amazing projects, um, not just in cardiovascular, but also cancer, cell biology, evolution. And so, so far we've done a lot of projects and we hope to help more and more people next year. Why the focus on evolution? What's wrong with the present? Well, there is nothing wrong with the present, but I learned that the only way in which we can really understand the present is through the past. And it's the same reason why we study history. Things tend to happen again and again in time. And by studying evolution, we learn what's happening in the past. Nature has been doing a lot of experiments for us, and so we learn which experiment really worked, and we can also understand the ones that didn't work. And so um, by looking into evolution or evolutionary phenomenon, 
we can basically understand what's happening now, for example, in the genome. So the, the, the time scales are different. So the, some of the things are studied happen through millions of years. And when you look at cancer, you're looking at one generation or like one patient. But the mechanisms are the same. And sometimes it's much easier to study them through the longer time scale than within a patient or comparing different patients. So my goal is to really learn as much as possible through evolution and then make um, have some questions, specific questions that I can relate to cancer. And then there are some times where these two things collide, really. I have a project now in my lab, which is a cancer of a gibbon. And so we are studying a sarcoma that occur in the gibbon, and we are trying to learn how much of that is shared with the sarcoma in human, because those are evolutionary processes that are basically shared between two completely different species. And we actually were really lucky to be funded by the Northwest Sarcoma Foundation. We have a very good relationship with them to study this particular cancer. How similar are gibbons to humans? They're very similar. So these uh, share a common ancestor with humans about 18 million years ago, which is not that far. And their genetic identity is 96%. So between us and chimp is about 99%, which is always amazing. But 96% is pretty high. And that's a, at the level of genetic identity. When we look at the chromosomes, they're very different. But because this is the feature of gibbons to be very different from the other apes. So the gibbon is an endangered species. Does this research have any kind of impact on their survival or their status as, a, as an endangered species? Yeah, so we are hoping that by knowing more about their DNA uh, and the diversity, uh, we can actually create some tools that can be applied then when we go into the field. Uh, maybe not myself directly, but we can create some, the more we know about their genetics, the more we might know about how to try to preserve um, which populations really need to be preserved or which population are not in, dan uh, in danger. And so I'm collaborating with uh, people that are interested in conservation in uh, Europe uh, to try to, you know, uh, kind of give them my knowledge about genomics, uh, gibbon genetics uh, for that. We're also collaborating really closely with the Gibbon Conservation Center. Uh, we actually, we were just there in April with my lab to, uh, they are basically trying to preserve these species, to breed them and they only work uh, through donations. So they survive to basically the general public's donations. So we created a, a science uh, exhibit that will be there about gibbon genetics for people to see, and it's being funded by the NSF as well. Do they still live in the wild? Yes, there are many gibbons in the wild. They are in uh, Vietnam, uh, Laos, um, China. Um, and there are a lot of new things that have been discovered. Recently, there was a big paper in Science about this gibbon um, skeleton that was discovered in a, in a tomb. So they used to be pets for uh, rich people. And we're actually, I'm actually trying to get my hands on some of the sequencing done on this particular specimen to see what we can learn about it. So what's next? So we're still working, as I told you, on the CRISPR-Cas9 experiment, so trying to do some functional uh, validation on what we discovered um, using the mouse model this time. And then we have other projects in which we are trying to figure out 
what is the origin really all these very interesting features that gibbons have like the chromosomal arrangements the the fact that they are such amazing climbers and they have some body modifications for that so we're going more into the gene expression at this moment to try to figure out can we learn anything from that and that's possible thanks to the collection of samples that I have accumulated in the last 13 years, which is the biggest, the largest collection of samples in the world. Um, so we'll see what we find out, but it's very, very promising. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. OHSU Week is a production of Strategic Communications. This episode was produced by Casey Williamson and edited by Josh Anderson. I'm Patrick Holmes. See you next week.